everyone. Welcome to episode 110 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And for those long-time listeners, you know every 10th episode, we, we have, have a giveaway. A giveaway of books. Yes. yes. So here we are with our another giveaway. This must be what, our 11th or our 10th? I can't figure math out very quickly. I guess it'd be the 11th, but I can't say with, I'm not sure that, did we actually start that on the 10th episode? I think we did, because okay. I think we were okay. so proud of ourselves okay. that we made it to 10. <laughs> it was such a major accomplishment. That we just had to celebrate. Yeah. So, well, here we are, 110, yay for us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a subscriber to our newsletter, you're automatically entered to win. Right. That's the only hoop you need to jump through to be entered to win. Right. And if you're not a subscriber already, you can just go to bookcougars.com and click the subscribe button and enter your email. And we use MailChimp, so it's super easy to unsubscribe if you right. don't want to get our emails anymore for whatever reason. I mean, we can't imagine anyone unsubscribing. No, for no reason at all. We send you one newsletter a month. It's very informative and interesting. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, we think it is because it's about books. But anyway, yes. we would love for you to subscribe to our newsletter and then you get the chance to win. Should we tell them the four books that we're giving away? Yes. You want to go first? Sure. One of them is called The Best New True Crime Stories, Small Towns. This gives me the extra heaves because I was born and raised in a small town. So <laughs> the picture on the front of the cover even almost looks like the small town I was yeah, born and raised. That's cool. So the yeah. best new true crime stories. Who's that edited by? Mitzi Zaretto. Hmm. Yeah. And she's the author of Florida Gothic, which cool. I've never heard of, but I will look up. Nice. So, so that's yeah. our first true crime giveaway. Yeah, and this came out on July 14th, so this was just released not too long ago. And then the other one, just as a bomb to all the true crime, is a romance called If I Never Met You by Mahari McFarlane. And this is getting really good reviews, and this just came out um, in March. Very cool. So. All right, well, and then the other two books are two horror novels. <laughs> so we are on the dark side, this giveaway um, the first book is The Deep by Alma Katsu. That is a story that is takes off kind of on the Titanic and then the Britannic, the sister ship. Really good horror slash mystery. And then the other book is one of the newer releases as well, Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. And this is a haunted house gothic horror novel. So we've got lots of horror, crime, and one romance. <laughs> you choose the order you read them in if you win. So yes. we're going to give all four of them away together. Yeah, to one so. person. Person. To one And should, should we choose the end of next week as our date to give it away? Does that seem reasonable or do you want to go longer than that? Oh, I think a Friday is good. Okay. Yeah, Fridays. Why not? It could be, you know, we can celebrate Friday reads and a giveaway and that's the 21st of August. All right, Emily. So what are you currently reading these days? I am currently reading a book called A House is a Body by Shruti Swami. And this comes out the Tuesday that this episode airs. So August 18th. It's short stories. 
um, getting rave reviews. It has a beautiful cover, so people might have seen, you know, the cover floating around. It's in some of those summer reads um, lists that you might click on as you're browsing around the internet. And I just started it last night. They're kind of um, almost, what's the word, like dreamy, I guess is the word I would use. So coming in and out of dream state, maybe, and talking about the body and pregnancies and marriages and things like that. So I'm, I'm just in the first story, um, but her writing is really beautiful. And that the blurbs on it talk about, she's been published a lot, like her short stories have been published a lot, but this is her first book of short stories that have been, did I say that? Well, like each individual story has been published, you know, in various mm-hmm. periodical things, but this is her first book of short stories together. So I'm really enjoying it. Again, A House is a Body, Shruti Swami. It's funny that the dream thing came up because I had a dream last night and I'm attributing it to Kathleen Rooney's book, Share on Me and Major Whittlesey. I dreamt that I had a pigeon that I had out front of our house in its own little pigeon roost and somebody stole my pigeon. Oh, that's a sad dream. It was a sad dream. And I woke up and I thought, share on me. (laughs) Yeah. So true story. Weird. Yeah, that is weird. I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of authors talk about that they get up and write super early. And part of it is because you are still a little bit in that dreamy state where your mind maybe explores things that we get too busy to explore during our wakeful times. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll write a short story about my missing pigeon. Yes, please do. <laughs> I'd read it. <laughs> well, I, I'm currently reading a monster of a book. I did start Forever Amber by Kathleen Windsor. I mentioned this one before as a book that I would try to read this summer for the big book summer reading challenge that our friend Sue hosts every year at her blog, Book by Book. This book is 972 pages long. I am currently on page 367. Oh, you're making waves. So I'm making waves. Yeah, my goal is to finish it by like next Friday if I can. I haven't had a ton of reading time lately, but um, I'm enjoying it a lot. People have compared it to Gone with the Wind, Hmm. not just because of its size, but because of the main character is a woman named Amber, who is a 16-year-old girl growing up in this small town. It's the 17th century. She's in England. King uh, Charles, it, well, it starts with even before her birth and kind of how she was born and came into being. But then when she's a 16-year-old, she runs off with this lord because she is just, she's a voluptuous, well-developed 16-year-old already. She wants to experience the world. She doesn't really feel like she belongs in her small town. And it's just epic, all the Mm. things she goes through. This great snapshot of London in the 1660s. Um, And some chapters interweave with what's going on with Charles II when he comes back to claim the throne. That's interesting, too, what his life is like. And there's this, this book came out in 1944. Yep, 1944. And it was banned in Boston, as one of the blurbs on the book says. It was really controversial. And I've heard from a lot of readers of uh, who, who've read it and loved it. And it's one of those steamy books that 
teenage girls have passed around to one another. There's not explicit sex at all, but there's enough of it to make it seem really steamy, you know, mm. especially for the 1940s. Amber, and I don't want to give away too much about it, but Amber is and not exactly a Puritan, let's put it that way. There's a <laughs> lot, I mean, it seems like everyone is having sex in this book. Right really, on. A ton of sex. And there's whores who are completely welcome into certain public areas like the theater. So I almost called her, I almost called her Scarlet just now. <laughs> Amber, I can imagine some of the movements that she does that are described in the book of Scarlet doing in the movie of Gone at the Wind, you know, like crossing her arms and huffing, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. But there is one scene where she has sex with this guy, you know, cause she's a woman, a teenage woman girl on her own. I mean, she is a woman in this day and age or her day and age at 16, 17, 18. So she has sex with this one wealthy man and it was, not uh it was a big wake-up call for her and she's already had sex with a bunch of people um and this is a quote amber was surprised it was her first experience with perversion and it would she swore be her last if she starved in the streets so <laughs> for me like that scene it made me think of scarlet you know with the onion right. saying as god is my witness i'll right. never be hungry again and here so you know that Kathleen Windsor probably read Gone at the Wind. Right. And may have been influenced by this. I have not looked into any of the behind-the-scenes writing of this novel at all. It was a huge bestseller when it came out. And people love the book, and I could see why. Well, and for listeners, I don't know if you remember Chris talking about this before. The Part of the reason she wants to read it is because her parents told her at some point that they had considered naming her Amber because of their love for this book when they read it together jointly. So yes. I, I'm dying to know as you read it, if you get to some scene where you're like, oh, this is probably why they decided not to name me Amber. Well, it's, I've already, I've already been there to that scene. Uh, it was actually a question Laura asked, like, what other names did you consider for for Chris? And my mom, that's when she said Amber. And we're like, Amber, why? That doesn't seem to have been a name from that time period you know so then she said it was from this novel and that they liked her pluck and how she was able to always kind of make it mm -hmm. with whatever was thrown at her pun intended <laughs> <laughs> but when I when I talked to my mom on the phone and I told her what I was reading she was so happy to hear oh, that good. I was reading it. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that more to great. come on that. So again, that was yeah. Forever Amber by Kathleen Windsor. I've got my tail between my legs because I have not started my big book for the summer. And that the big book read-along is supposed to be between Memorial Day and Labor Day, which is quickly approaching, which gives you plenty of time, I might add. So I got to get to it. just read I just read the Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner this is the one I talked about last episode that I said you know I'm not an Austenite I have never read a Jane Austen novel and this is a book we're reading for my book club and so I I wouldn't go so far as to say I had a bad attitude but I thought I wouldn't really like it and I 
loved it. That's awesome <laughs> to hear. <laughs> so, um, and my fellow uh, book club member, Ryan, is, um, he had never read Austin either. We were the only two. Nobody in our book club could believe that we hadn't read Austin. So he has started something he's calling The Austin Affair, which he's reading a Jane Austen book, uh, one book a month for the next six months. So I, I think I'm going to have to join him now on one of his his reads. But um, the premise of this book is it's a group of people living in, I'm probably not going to pronounce this correctly, Chawton, Chawton, England, which is the hometown, or I don't know if it's the hometown or where Jane Austen passed away. Maybe it was her last place of residence, I think, if I have that right. A cast of characters come together. It's fiction. And they all, you know, know that Jane Austen lived in the town. There's this big mansion that's kind of um, not fallen in disrepair, but they definitely don't have the money to maintain it anymore. And one of her descendants is now living there with a crotchety, mean father that's on his deathbed. And he chooses to not have his daughter, who's still living there, be the heir to the, all of this because he's mean and crotchety. Wow. And a group of people who love Jane Austen, men and women, which I loved that the author did that, want to preserve the books that are in this library in the house and start a Jane Austen society, which they do. And eventually they hope to purchase one of the small buildings on the property and make that a museum to Jane Austen and to put some of the artifacts of her life in this museum, including books. So there, I'm sure there were a lot of references, Jane Austen references that whoosh, went right over my head, but that didn't keep me from enjoying the book. And there's some love that I imagine is similar. I mean, I've seen, you know, like Pride and Prejudice, the movie and um, Emma. I don't know that I've ever seen Sense and Sensibility, but so I, I know Austen-esque love stories, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there was definitely some of that flair to the book as well. So I really enjoyed it. If you're an Austen fan, I imagine you would adore it. But I can say from one that doesn't know much, I really enjoyed it. And it was just one Sunday, I just sat in my hammock and read it. And it was the perfect escape book. Right. So again, that's called The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. Fun. I, I am supposed to be rereading Persuasion by Jane Austen for book club next Friday, but I think with having lost power for almost the whole week and not having the internet for the whole week, I'm just so behind with work stuff that it's kind of derailed my reading plans. I'm going to try and find the a movie version of Persuasion, which I don't think I've ever seen a movie adaptation of that particular oh, novel. That seems like a, a good have to. <laughs> <for the next laughs> And you read a couple more, so what else? I did. I finished a book I've talked about already called Eat Joy, Stories and Comfort Food from 31 Celebrated Writers. And this was edited by Natalie Eve Garrett. Um, I talked about it already. It's, you know, uh, well thought of authors and, and published authors who write a short story that's somewhat food related and not somewhat, it is food related. And then at the end of the short story is the recipe for whatever they talked about. And some of them are as simple as, you know, boxed brownies, which I think is what I talked about before. Yes. One was for chai tea. You know, so it's not really about like, oh, these are amazing, complex food recipes. It's more 
you know, um, enlightened you as to what something around food meant to this person in their family or some part of their history. And what I really found I loved about it was all of what I just talked about, but also the opening, you know, the um, kind of like when we introduce an author, the bio that you give, I just felt like my reading list exploded by looking at the bios of each of these authors, you know, because right, yeah. I read the short story and I was like, oh, I have to read more by them. And I took months to read it. You know, it was a lovely book to dip into when I finished another book or um, sometimes I've been back and forth a lot to the gentleman callers and I didn't always have the books I meant to have with me, but I could dip into that, you know, and just read a short story. So that was really nice. So I recommend it. And it's also got a beautiful cover, so I think it'd be a fun gift. Eat Joy, Stories and Comfort Food from 31 Celebrated Writers. And Chris mentioned that we had a big storm here. It was crazy. It was scary. It was traumatizing, <laughs> I have to say. The osprey nest in front of my house blew down. Oh, it was really no. sad. Yeah, I lost the chicks, which was devastating. Um, someone did build a new nest right away, like put up a whole new structure, which was really lovely. And there is a pair back in there, but they did lose their chicks. So I, too, have been I was without power for 10 days. I just got back into my house. Um, thankfully, I was able to go up to Jim's house. And one day I had just had like I was so done <laughs> and I was having trouble with my computer. He was without power, too. That was the other thing. So I finally just said, like, I'm just going to sit in this chair and read a book. Good. And I had um, Zadie Smith's new book of essays called Intimations. And it's a book of six essays. It's less than 100 pages. Ooh. I literally sat down and just read it. It's not easy to read. I mean, it's a it. She started writing it at, in the early stages of the pandemic when we were sheltering in place. So it's really a reflection on that, you know, being um, sheltering in place with her family and um, racism and the George Floyd um, killing. All of those impacted these six essays. I really enjoyed it. I've said that I haven't read Zadie Smith before, and I feel like it's one of those holes in my, you know, reading I don't know what you would call that, your author reading list or, you know, whatever. Yeah, your, your contemporary writer's brain housing group database. Who knows? Right. <laughs> Very good. So she, you know, she wrote each of the essays I thought were compelling for different reasons. But I want to um, just read this quote where she was talking about suffering and kind of the difference looking at class and privilege and suffering. So she says, class is a bubble formed by privilege, shaping and manipulating your conception of reality. But it can at least be brought to mind, acknowledged, comprehended, even atoned for through transformative action. By comparing your relative privilege with others, you may be able to modify both your world and the world outside of your world if the will is there to do it. Suffering is not like that. Suffering is not relative. It is absolute. Suffering has an absolute relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily mediated by a third term like privilege. If it could, the CEO's daughter would never starve herself, nor the movie idol ever put a bullet in his own brain. Wow, that's, that's intense. 
So well said. Yes. And that's the thing I learned about reading her. I mean, one of the short stories she talks about is just um, her experience going to um, get her massage, her neck massage during this time. And she always is reading. And she said she won't even stop reading to get a massage. So she won't do a massage on a big massage table. She'll only use the chair massage tables because you can still, like, look through the hole and read, which I thought was hilarious. So, you know, she just, she seemed so brilliant, but yet so normal to me Mm. in these writings. I really appreciated that. Again, Intimations by Zadie Smith. Read it in an afternoon, and I highly recommend it. That's pretty incredible that she wrote them within just the last, you know, five months, four months, and that the publisher got it out so quickly. I agree. And I should say the royalties, I think part of why it went out so quickly is because it is, in a certain way, a fundraiser. Mm. Because the royalties of it, um, she's sending to two different nonprofits, the Equal Justice Initiative and the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund for New York City. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's part of why. I don't know the you know inner workings of the publishing industry that well, but I, I would guess that's part of why it got fast-tracked a little. Right. Um, do you want to talk about the book you read, or do you want me to keep talking? I have one more. No, you keep going, because I... Oh, yeah, I did read a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just enjoying listening to you talk about the books that you've read. I did finish the audio book I was listening to called Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and that was by Imani Perry. It was narrated by Lisa Gay Hamilton, and I really enjoyed it. It's just out of, two years ago, I think it came out, and I think I mentioned in the last episode, it won a host of awards and was on a lot of lists. And what Perry does is it's, um, it is a celebration of Lorraine Hansberry's life, but also digging into the details of her life and her writings as well, because she's been kind of one of the forgotten voices of the, of her time period. You know, James Baldwin is having a resurgence they were friends. Uh, uh, Nina Simone, they were friends. And she was acquaintances and friends with so many other people, you know, Malcolm X, Langston Hughes. Uh, she was a student of W.B. Du Bois. So she was very much in the heat of the equality movement, the, uh, you know, the seeking more equality for Negroes is, was the accepted term back then prior to the civil rights movement that really exploded in the 60s. And what Perry's trying to do is to reclaim her life and her voice and to say, you know, she is somebody who matters more than we think. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of her, uh, some of the obituaries after Hansberry died at the very young age of only 34 were very dismissive of her. You know, those key words, angry, angry young black woman, you know, Mm -hmm. those words and descriptions that are still used today to dismiss people. Mm -hmm. and their voices, and their ideas, and their experience, and everything else about them, including their personhood, and their right to life. So I really loved learning about her. uh, Lorraine was married to a white man. She was African American, married to a white guy. She was also a lesbian. She identified as a lesbian, and her husband was completely fine with that, and she had relationships with women, Uh, Nina Simone's husband, on the other hand, was not okay with her lesbianism. 
Um, so that was kind of a, a bit of a juxtaposition and not too much of uh, was talked about that. It was just something that was mentioned, but I thought it was very interesting looking at the two relationships. One of the interesting things for some listeners uh, might be that one of Lorraine Hansberry's lovers was Molly Malone Cook, who was actually Mary Oliver's lifelong partner. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So like they all, they, they must have all maybe met in Provincetown. I know that's where Mary Oliver and Molly Malone Cook met. Um, Molly Malone Cook was a photographer and she was a photographer of the Village Voice which Lorraine Hansberry wrote for. So, you know, it's all that world at that time period, which it'd be really, I don't know if there is a, a historical look at that time period and all the writers from that time period and how they mixed and mashed in right. New York, in the village. Um, I can imagine that another reason that Hansberry was kind of neglected is that she was unflinching in looking at racism uh, at the time period to the point where she really did go after like the beat poets who were all that back then, you know, mm -hmm. and the village hipsters, like she called them out on their racism. Mm -hmm. So I think she made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, there's so many different reasons why authors get put on college curriculums and why sure. they don't. And so I think perhaps Lorraine Hansberry could be one of those who does get back on People's radar a lot more, and her papers are at the Schomburg Center, that branch of the New York Public Library that is a research library for Black culture. Yeah, that would be cool to go see it. Yeah, yeah. it totally would. Yeah. So again, that was Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry by Imani Perry. And I got completely interrupted in my audiobook listening. I didn't get anywhere last week with it. So I'll have to get back. You're reminding me I was had started two different audiobooks. I'd love to get back to. Um, the other book that I finished was called Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. This comes out on September 8th. He is, um, some of you might recognize his name. He's pretty prolific now. But the only other book of his I've read is A Man Called Oove. O-V-E. It also was made into a wonderful movie. I highly recommend it. Um, this book is funny. It's literally funny. Like it's satirical, but also incredibly poignant. And the premise of it is there's um, a bank robber who goes to rob a bank, but accidentally chooses to rob a cashless bank, which I didn't even know there was such a thing. But this takes place in I think Scandinavia, wherever, I think that's where Bachman's from. So, oops, you Weiss. know, you go to rob a bank and it's a cashless <laughs> bank. So when fleeing, because the police were called, even though no robbery happened, um, when fleeing the scene, the bank robber runs into an open door and up this set of stairs and into an open house at an, in an apartment building that's filled with people looking at the apartment, you know, with ski mask on and gun in hand. <laughs> So all sorts of craziness ensues because as you might imagine, there is a cast of characters, none of whom have anything to do with each other that are there to look at this apartment. And it's very funny. I mean, almost like slapstick funny at some points, which is not typically the kind of reading that I do, but I, I enjoyed this book a lot. Um, but there's also this very interesting story arc about suicide at the same time. Oh. And that is handled by how he weaves the different characters um, and how they come into contact with each other. And he does that as 
two police officers who come to the scene because now it's a hostage situation. It's gone from a bank robbery to a hostage situation. Are called they're called to this, you know, scene of the hostage situation, and they're a father and son police duo. Oh jeez. <laughs> so part of this the book is, you know, the actual scenes in the apartment during the hostage situation, and then part of them are the interviews that the police are doing with the various hostages after the fact to try to figure out what happened. And um, at the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, Frederick Bachman acknowledges a friend of his who committed suicide 20 years ago and acknowledges that he's sorry that he couldn't do something to prevent it. So obviously that is something that he is, you know, fleshing out in the course of this book. And he does have at the end of the book, you know, um, information about suicide hotlines and things like that. So I know that makes it sound like, oh, it must be so depressing, but he manages not to do that with this book, which I think is really quite artful. Another book I enjoyed and recommend, and they were all the books I read were so different (laughs) over the last couple of weeks, you know. (laughs) That's Um, great. Yeah. So again, that's called Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. And I have to say, one of my friends on, I think, Twitter saw me post about that book and said, isn't that what we all are right now? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious and true. And um, nothing like what this book, you know, this book has nothing to do with, you know, being a pandemic or anything like that. But um, I thought that was pretty funny. Biblio Adventures, did you have any couch Biblio Adventures? I had one. Sadly, you know, the, the big storm that came through interrupted my ability to go to the Schomburg Center event that we had both hoped to go to. I did see that they recorded it, which Mm -hmm. is super exciting. So I'm going to try to watch it. I just noticed that today. But one of our listeners reached out and told us that Why We Swim book by Bonnie Tsui was actually the LA Times book club pick. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there was a great recording of her conversation about it so I watched that so thank you so much Susan for pointing that out it's on YouTube I will put a link in the show notes also really cool is she was um, in conversation with somebody a reporter I believe from the LA Times but then they had on about midway through Lynn Cox who wrote the book Swimming to Antarctica which is such a good book And um, Lynn Cox, for those of you who don't know, is a woman who has, she has swum incredibly cold open water swims. And there's something about her body chemistry that she can do it in a swimsuit. Wow. Um, Yeah. And I mean, this is really (laughs) might be too much for people. But even one of her swims, they actually put like a thermometer, an anal thermometer in her body while she was swimming so they could see like how can this woman possibly survive in these waters yeah Yeah. and she's she's from the english channel i mean she has done so much in so many interesting swims i ran read that book swimming to antarctica in the middle of winter one year and i was like shivering in a chair (laughs) reading (laughs) this book but loved every word of it she's a great writer also so again, that was a couch with Leo adventure, listening to Bonnie talk about um, why we swim with the LA Times. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I will put the link in the show notes. 
How about you? That's great. Yeah, you know what? I did watch the replay of Isabel Wilkerson's talk oh, at the yeah. New York Public Library, uh, Schomburg Center. Uh, she's talking about her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. And it's such a good conversation. Wilkerson was also on the latest episode of the New York Times Book Review podcast. She's in conversation with Pamela Paul. So both of those are just really great introductions to the work itself. You know, she talks, people have asked her if they should read The Warmth of Other Suns first or Cast first. And I don't think it makes a difference really. But the work that she did on Cast came out of what she discovered during her research for The Warmth of Other Sons, where she interviewed 1,200 people wow. for that book. And that, again, that was about the millions of African Americans who fled the Jim Crow South uh, for the North from the 1915 to 1970 about. Um, and she said, like, that's one of the most underreported stories of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, but so Origins or the cast, the origins of our discontent, is about caste in America, India, and then Nazi Germany. And so for, for some countries, you know, she, she talks about caste, that it's, you know, it's an artificial hierarchy of humans that's obviously constructed by humans. And sometimes it's based on religion, sometimes geography, and in America it's because of race. And, you know, race wasn't really a conception when Europeans first started coming to North America. It was something that developed, it needed to be developed because of slavery. And she doesn't even use the word racism a lot. She says, like, in the warmth of other suns, she didn't use the word racism because she said it wasn't sufficient enough to describe what was going on. Mm. And since her work on that, she's, she still doesn't use the word racism a lot because she said, you know, it's so personal, it's so subjective. She considers racism and conversations about racism to be a distraction from the larger issues of the social structure of caste. Mm. And I'm really excited about reading this book because um, she talks about caste is more about boundaries than emotions. And I think that's why racism is so hard to talk about because it is so emotional, whereas caste is looking at the structure, you know, and it's like, it takes me back to some arguments, uh, early, not early, but, you know, feminist arguments about patriarchy, you know, dismantling the system. You know, she studied India because she's like, I had to, because they're the most well-known caste system in the world. Mm -hmm. And Nazi Germany she went there because of Charlottesville protests that happened there. She said, you know, when she saw these people marching with both rebel flags, symbols of the Confederacy and the swastika symbols of Nazi Germany, she's like, these were self-selected symbols mm -hmm. that these people chose to bring together. And like, why? So she mm -hmm. started studying Nazi Germany and went there and found mind blowing information about how the Nazis came to the United States to study how Jim Crow was working. How were they mm. able to do these things to keep blacks subjugated? Mm -hmm. Because they wanted to learn how to do the same thing to the Jewish people in Germany and all of the world. And when some of the researchers went back to Germany to present their findings, some of the other Nazi higher-ups didn't believe it. They didn't mm. believe that 
you know, things were so blatantly done in America. So mm. there's a lot more to that, I'm sure. I can't wait to read yeah. the book, as I've said. Oof, but it just sounds like it's going to be a big, really change in the way people understand discrimination in this country. Because, you know, there's just, what she said is, if it's class, you can change it. So, like, if you've changed your circumstances, it's a class issue. Mm-hmm. If you can't, it's a caste issue. Wow, what a gift she is to the world. Oh my gosh, she is. She is so smart. Yeah. And, and just thoughtful. Like, this is, you know, like big concept books that are mm-hmm. really, as the interviewer, and I'm sorry I didn't write his name down um, from the New York Public Library event. You know, he made reference to somebody who said it's the kind of book that changes the reader's internal weather, which I love that because, you know, you know what that feels like. You can't describe it, but, you know, you know what that feels like. Yeah. Well, what a perfect time for it to be coming out. I mean, I hope that it helps aid in the conversation that we need to have moving forward in our country right now. Yeah, know? absolutely. Because somebody asked a question too about intersection, intersectionality and like, how does that work with caste? And what Wilkerson said was that caste is the structure behind all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, the caste is like the bones of the system. Race is the skin. And then class is the clothing. Like you can Mm -hmm. change your clothing, right? You can't change your skin, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's just really mind blowing. I can't wait to, to dig into it. And I've uh, seen some friends have already read it and have great things to say about it. I was going to say that I've seen that as well. So that makes me, you know, it's one that I would think I would thought I would get on audio, but now that you're talking about it, I think I want both. Mm. I think I want to hear it spoken to me, but I think I want to be able to write in it and post it in it and all that, you know? Yeah, exactly. And reread and yeah. Right. Just have on your shelf Mm -hmm. as a reminder and and something you can pull down and refresh. Because I was debating too, whether or not to do the audio or a hard Mm -hmm. copy. And I know my friend Janet and I happened to be tweeting about it. So I decided to get the hard copy because We'll definitely chat about it. But I think, yeah, getting the audio might be kind of cool, too, to have both. Sometimes with big think things like that, I need to hear it, like, over and over mm-hmm. and read it over and over. You know, like, I really need to, to get it. Because, I, I mean, you just described it so well that I'm not sure that when I'm reading it, some ideas I might need to machinate over a yeah. little bit, you know? Yeah, well, I would recommend everybody listen to that interview, either from, at the New York Public Library or the um, New York Times Book Review podcast, because mm-hmm. she talks about it in such an understandable way mm-hmm. that it would be maybe good to have that breakdown in her words floating in your head right. while you're reading it. Yeah, so I'll put the link in the show notes to both the Schomburg Center um, YouTube and the New York Times Book Review podcast. So easy to find from our show notes. Thank you for that. You know, your reflections on that. I'm definitely, I just noticed, like I said, right before we started recording that it had been recorded. I was thrilled to see that. I was so too, because Tuesday when that event happened, that's when it hit the fan here in Connecticut. Right, exactly. (laughs) We were fleeing from downed trees and no power right about then. So any upcoming jaunts, Chris? 
Yeah, you and I have a joint one coming up. It's not until October, but we wanted to tell everybody about it now because there are still tickets available. It's the Hachette Book Club Brunch. And longtime listeners may remember that last year we got to do this event in person. Um, it's an annual event held in New York City. This year it's October 17th. It is online, so you can save some uh, travel money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it's only $15 to get a ticket. Again, it's October 17th, 10.30 to 1. And what they do is they have a great lineup of authors with new books coming out. And they're in conversation with somebody. We just had such a great time last year. That's where we met Sally Field last year. It was so much fun. Yeah, and they usually, they have a fiction panel and a nonfiction panel for sure. And I'm not sure what else they'll do. And then it's a keynote usually, I guess. Yeah. 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 So we highly recommend it. And you can go on a joint jump with us if you sign up, which would be so fun. We'll put the link to how to buy tickets in the show notes for that. Yeah. How about you? What's on your calendar? I have two on August 18th. Um, I have one through the Brooklyn Historical Society, which I think is so cool. It's in honor of the anniversary of women's right to vote. And um, it's called Women Plus Power. And I think it's a series, but this particular one is on body power. And it's also sponsored by the Ms. Foundation for Women. It's at 730 it's virtual, and the uh, two authors are Tressie McMillan Cottom, who we saw with Roxanne Gay in New Haven, and then Jennifer Finney Boylan, um, and then the person who's moderating is Raquel Willis from the Ms. Foundation, and it's about reclaiming power and agency in women's bodies. So I'm really interested in it. I know Jennifer Finney Boylan is a transgender woman. Um, and Tressie McMillan Cottom wrote that great book of short stories called Thick, which I think explores the woman, woman's body as well. So kind of a power uh, group of, of authors there. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Again, that's August 18th at 730 through the Brooklyn Historical Society. And then some events now, they are starting to charge. I've seen some bookstores, like the Northshire Bookstore does a sliding scale, which I think is really nice. But this, I actually bought tickets to this event on August 20th at 8 o'clock. Yagi Yassi is in conversation with Roxanne Gay. This is a Pen America series event called Pen Out Loud. And um, Yagi Yassi has that new book coming out, Transcendental Kingdom or Transcendent Kingdom, <laughs> Transcendental, <laughs> Transcendent Kingdom, uh, which I loved. So I cannot wait to see this conversation. Right. So I'll put link in the show notes for that as well. And I think it was $20. So there was a cost, but it didn't break the bank, mm-hmm. you know. And that was, I did not order a ticket with a book. I think they have a special that if you get in at a certain point, order your ticket at a certain point, you get the book and a ticket for a certain price. So check it out. All right. What about upcoming reads? What's on your nightstand waiting to be cracked open? Yes, I have two. I have The Sea Wife by Amity Gage. This was the book that Ann Kingman recommended when um, Books on the Nightstand did a quick one-time-only video. Yeah. Um, what is was it called? Books on the nightstand 
um, like, uh, you know, shut in or something. I can't remember. <laughs> that is not it. But, and interestingly, I have this habit when I start a book, I read the acknowledgements first. Mm-hmm. And I read, I haven't cracked it to start it, but I read the acknowledgements and Ann Kingman is thanked in the acknowledgements. Oh, so now I'm awesome. like, huh, there's more to that story. <laughs> I want to hear it. And then the other one I have is called Betty. And this is by Tiffany McDaniel. And that one publishes on August 18th, um, the date this podcast goes live. All right. Well, I'm going to be going back to a classic. You know, there's the classics club that I'm, a member of and try to follow through and read from my classics club list. Um, every now and then they do what they call as a spin where you take 20 books from your list, write a blog post, and then they roll the dice and whatever number is the corresponding book that you read. So on this latest spin, the book that I'll be reading is from here to eternity by James Jones. And this is a world war two novel. It came out in 1951 and Jones was actually at Pearl Harbor. He's in the army. He was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked by the Japanese um, in that surprise attack. So this novel is about that and about, you know, the real lived army experience written by a veteran. And I realized like I, I haven't read much World War II fiction by World War II veterans. Like I read more memoirs or, mm-hmm. you know, historical looks at certain battles and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to this. And then there's the classic movie um, with Burt Lancaster. Can't remember the woman who starred with him where they're rolling in the surf making out, mm-hmm. which always looks better than it feels in real life. If you've ever <laughs> tried that, it's so not yes. comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, sand gets in some unpleasant places. Yes, yeah. So (laughs) I'll be reading that. And I think that I'm supposed to be reading that by late September is the the deadline, um, which is always appreciated to have a deadline. So and that is another big summer book read for me. So I'll I'll be reading these two big chunkster books for a while. Ah. You know, I got confused. For some reason, I thought Forever Amber was your classic spin. Oh, yeah, so, no. I, okay, Yeah, I this is confused. just the personal, I was almost named okay. Amber book. Right. But it, I did put it on my list for uh, the big book summer challenge, for sure. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could double up, because I think that's supposed <laughs> to be over 400. So I think you get a bonus point right. if you finish that one. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. Well, so now coming up next, we have our author spotlight interview with Caroline Lovett. We are so excited to talk with her again. She has a new book. Yeah, it's called With or Without You. And I really loved it. Loved our conversation with Caroline. She's always interesting to talk to. And she's such a supporter of authors that I just really appreciate that. She's very generous with her time. And if you're not following her, on social media and just on her own website where she has a blog where she interviews various authors and talks about their books. I highly recommend that you do. Yeah, absolutely. And she has some great advice for writers. We're here today with Caroline Lovett, who is the New York Times bestselling author of 12 novels, some of which have been optioned for film, translated into other languages, and condensed into magazines. Her essays, articles, stories, and book reviews have appeared in Salon, Psychology Today, 
the New York Times Sunday Book Review, and their Modern Love series, Publishers Weekly, People, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many more publications. She's also a screenwriter, a manuscript developer, and teaches novel writing online at Stanford and UCLA. And most recently, she's part of the dynamic duo, and I know there's a bigger team um, behind what you're doing, A Mighty Blaze. I know our listeners are very familiar with A Mighty Blaze and the great work that you all are doing to help authors get their books out during this time of pandemic. We're here today to talk with Caroline about her new novel, With or Without You, which just came out earlier this month from Algonquin and is blazing trails everywhere. It's the story (laughs) of a woman who remembers everything about having been in a coma And it's kind of the opposite of an earlier novel of Caroline's called Coming Back to Me, which was about a woman who was in a coma who remembered nothing, which was reflective of Caroline's (laughs) own experience of being in a medically induced coma. So, Caroline, we're so thrilled to talk with you today, and we want to thank you for making the time to be with us here today. Oh, of course. I love the book Cougars, and I'm, I'm just honored to be here again and excited and thrilled. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carolyn. You know, Chris and I were talking before we got on mic, and I was trying to remember where I first met you at a Booktopia, and I couldn't remember where it was. Do you remember which Bellingham. Booktopia? Bellingham. That Bellingham, was my guess. Bellingham. Okay. Bellingham. Yeah. Okay. It was one I loved Booktopia. That was so much fun. It was really fun. That's the first time I met you, okay? Because I've also um, had the pleasure of seeing you speak at the Newburyport literary festival as well. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here with your new book. I loved the book. I'm not alone. It's garnering incredible praise from all the big guns. So congratulations. And um, as Chris mentioned, you yourself were in a coma, a little bit different than the character in this book in the Mm -hmm. sense that it was a medically induced coma, whereas this young woman falls into a coma in a different way. Can you talk about if you don't mind your own experience and why you're revisiting the world of a coma again. (laughs) It's sort of interesting to me. I mean, I, I, I was put in an induced coma for um, two or three weeks, like 20 years ago after the birth of my son, I just developed this very mysterious blood disorder and nobody knew what it was. And I was at NYU medical center and they didn't know what to do. And they just thought I was dying. So they put me in this coma and they gave me this thing, which I never heard of, called memory blockers, where I think it makes you more docile when they want to do these procedures, or maybe they just didn't want me to remember anything. But when I woke up, what happened was that my mom, I couldn't remember anything. The last thing I remembered was getting ready to go home with my baby. And then all of a sudden, here I was in this hospital bed, and there were it was like a TV show with all these doctors around me saying, do you know who you are? Do you know what day it is? And I kept thinking, this is really strange. And the thing was that anyone who had been with me, like my husband, my friends, my family, they didn't want to tell me what had gone on because they were so traumatized, which made me more traumatized. So... There I was, I couldn't remember anything, but my body remembered. And I would have these terrible post-traumatic shock uh, triggers. I would smell something and I would go in a panic attack. And somebody would tell me, oh, that's the lotion that the hospital used. Or I would see a color, you know, the stripes on the hospital curtains. And those would make me really panicky. So by the time I got home, it... um. 
It was like, I was in the hospital three months uh, and I had to stay in bed for another three months. And it took another, it took a total of a year before I was well. And I still had these triggers. So I went to talk to a therapist and the therapist said, well, why you're right, why don't you write about it and you'll make sense of it. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So I wrote this book and it was just, you know, like a woman like me has a baby, goes into this coma, memory blockers, all this kind of stuff. And it was sort of a dark book. And I thought I would feel better, but I didn't. And I thought, oh, that's really strange. So I just put it aside for years and years and years. And then in the last five years, I still was having a lot of these triggers and I just got really tired of it. So I went to another therapist and said, I don't know what to do about this, but this has to stop. I couldn't go to sleep. I was always afraid. My husband went to Norway to do this journalism journalist thing and the whole week he was away I kept all the lights in my house on and I watched movies from 10 o'clock at night until six o'clock in the morning because I was afraid to go to sleep in the dark so this new therapist said oh well you know you you probably wrote the wrong book you don't want to write a book about somebody who had your experience you want to create new memories and she said you can consider it like hypnosis if you take a match and you put it to somebody's skin and you say, oh, the match is on flame, their skin will blister up. Your brain doesn't really know the difference. She said, why don't you try to write a novel about somebody who's different, whose experience is totally different from yours? And I thought, okay, I can do that. So my plan was to, you know, write about a woman who remembered everything. Before I did that, I, I wanted to research just what I could have her do. So I contacted this guy, Joseph Clark, at the University of Cincinnati, who does coma research. And I said, well, what can happen? And he got really excited. And he said, anything you want. And he said, in coma, <laughs> your brain just sort of like it rewires and refires. And he started telling me these amazing stories of people who would wake up and one woman was speaking fluent Mandarin and she, you know, she had nobody in her, in her background who was Mandarin or could speak that. Another guy woke up and all of a sudden he was a virtuoso on the violin and he was playing in Carnegie Hall. And um, one of my favorite wow. stories was one guy woke up, woke up and he was sure he was the actor Matthew McConaughey and they <laughs> could not disabuse him of that. He kept saying, get me my agent, call my agent, where's my script? They kept showing him a mirror and oh what he saw was Matthew McConaughey. Wow. It took him six, it took him six months to realize that he was not. And I well, did wow. they finally, like bring Matthew McConaughey into the room? They're like, dude, this is <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> they um, couldn't get him. So I thought, as soon as I heard that, instead of this dark, deep book about, oh, I have to revisit my home again. It was this. I felt this lightness, like, oh, this is really full of wonder. And I kept talking to this guy and saying, well, could she wake up and have? healing abilities and he said yeah and you know who knows he said who knows where any of this stuff comes from he said the brain is this miraculous thing and you can do whatever you want and I thought oh this really frees me up so I created this woman Stella and I began to write her in the coma what I thought it might be like and the more I wrote the better I felt and I gave her talent and that made me really happy and the odd thing was when I finished the book I said to my husband it's it's this really weird thing I've written this book about a coma and it's it's just filling me with wonder <laughs> you know instead of this dark tragedy I feel like 
oh, this is really great. And it made me feel happier and I felt better. I still, the only thing left now of my post-traumatic stuff is I, I still don't really love going to sleep, but I can, you know, I will, it, there's just a, that initial minute. And I, I understand like where the trauma comes from, but now I feel like, well, I lived through it again and this time in a much happier way. And that That's healed fantastic. me. That just yeah. healed me. Yeah, it's, it's, the brain is so fascinating, and the yeah. science behind it is just incredible. Wow, you know, I I thought that that was just kind of Hollywood stuff about you know people waking up and maybe being able to speak Mandarin or having these you know special talents. That's amazing to hear, and I, I think it's fantastic <laughs> that this you know the healing powers of writing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly yeah. the healing powers. Yeah, you become another per I became another person. I mean, that was the gift that creating Stella did for me, where I I was really able to heal through writing her and in a very happy way. You know, it's interesting because that reminds me of the character Libby. And I wanted to talk about Libby, where she also had a life-altering experience as a child. And I don't want to yeah. do any spoilers as we're talking about this, but the experience really informed her future and who she decided to become yeah. and the path that she forged in her life. And by experience, by going through Stella's experience with her and just, you know, growing into an adult, she faced her past. And really yeah. to me, that character was about how, you know, we think we can run from experiences, but they manifest themselves inside of us. It right. Exactly. The other thing about, I, I truly believe that so much that goes on in our childhoods really impacts us in ways we can't imagine. And for Libby, she had, she did have this traumatic experience as a child, but she had a misconception about it. She believed something about it that wasn't true. And it shaped her life completely and made her into a certain type of person who was very tentative about you know, loving anybody and very tentative about like what was the right thing to do and how she should live her life. And again, you know, it wasn't until she went back and sort of faced what had happened that she realized, oh my God, I was, I was totally wrong about this. And I've carried this through my whole life and I'm not that person, you know? So in a way it sort of like plays off the coma where she wasn't that person and suddenly she had the chance to be a different person because she had a different realization and I think everybody does that I mean our childhoods can really screw us up and <laughs> give us all these kinds of misconceptions about what kind of person you are and yeah. all these messages and if you think about it and you start to realize oh that isn't true you actually can trigger and rewire things in your brain and you know, become a little bit different, a little bit different. And so to me, Libby was like so interesting to write because I, when I started writing her, I didn't really know what her deal was or what was going to happen. <laughs> and so I was just writing her backstory. And as soon as I wrote her childhood, I thought, oh, now I know. And she's going to not, because as a child, you just take in whatever you're told as right. the truth. And um, I just found that really interesting, too. I, I truly believe that people can change. And now that I know a little bit about brain chemistry, I know that you can have these fundamental deep changes. Um, and it does take some work. And sometimes it takes a little bit of pain. But the rewards are incredible. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, you've written uh, so much on such a variety of topics. And I saw on Twitter that you're now a columnist for Psychology Today. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your, your writing yeah. on psychological topics? It, yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. That was something I just wrote this article about. Um, speaking of misconceptions, I grew up really bullied because I had asthma and, you know, it's a noisy disease and I would never talk about it. And I was very, very shamed. And about five years ago, I started having some breathing problems and I went to all different doctors and nobody knew what I had. And they're always telling me, it's your heart. It's this other thing. Finally, I went to this specialist at this Jewish respiratory hospital, had a branch at Mount Sinai. And I spoke to this amazing doctor and she talked to me for an hour and she looked at me and she said, you don't have asthma. And I said, what do you mean I don't have asthma? I've had it since I was five. That's who I am. And she said, no, that you don't have it. And she gave me this test called a metacoline challenge, which is a gold standard. And I passed it. And she said, you don't have it at all. I want you to go cold turkey off all your meds. And I thought, how can I not have my asthma meds? And she said, you don't need them. You don't need them. So I stopped the meds. I haven't taken any medication for over a year now. And um, I, I wrote an essay about it. Like, who am I if I don't have asthma? I mean, that was my whole thing. I wrote a novel about it. I would talk to people about asthma. And I never had it. Am I a fraud? So... Um, <laughs> I have this wonderful, wonderful, helpful publicist, Lara Rossi, who works for, who's the Mighty Blaze publicist, and she placed it for me at Psychology Today, and they said, this is really interesting, would you like a column and a blog? I said, yeah. So I decided to call it Runs in the Family, because as always, I feel that everything comes from you know, your family, you're taught certain things. And it really interests me about where we get our messages and how those messages are wrong. I mean, the, the, the first column I wrote was about asthma. And the next column that I just finished is actually about where do we get our ideas about success and fame and I was always thinking about it I thought of course I got it from my family yeah. who told me who do you think you are you know yeah. you're not supposed to do this and writing as a hobby and all this stuff and to me the whole idea of fame is being seen just being recognized and that's why I gave it to to Simon in the book but I'm really really interested in you know what we believe and how it shapes us and how off so often what we believe it just isn't true yeah well Carolyn that's so interesting and a perfect segue because I've I had this quote I wanted to read about oh, okay. Simon. And um, this is um, when, you know, Simon is a character in Carolyn's book that's a musician. And he's he's doing well as a musician. He's, he's not a ne'er-do-well. He's, you know, right. having some fame and some success. And he's, this is about Simon. But fame for Simon was something different than it was for her and her as Stella. For Simon, it was a way of telling his father... I matter and showing him how everyone else thought so too. And I just loved that so much because Simon, you know, even with fame, what he's looking for is for his stodgy lawyer father to just approve of who he is. And so many of us are right. So I was yeah. wondering about that for you and for your family and, you know, how, how that influenced your writing life. 
it's it's incredible that you brought that up. And when you read that, I felt myself sort of tearing up because that that was my life. I mean, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. My father was really a brood and abusive. And my mother could be fiercely loving, but also fiercely moody. And when I decided I was going to be a writer, the message was, who do you think you are? And that's a hobby. And no, you're not. And I you know, I never got any praise for anything else, for anything. It was always, you know, be more like your sister and this and that. And when I started publishing, there wasn't any praise. I, I remember when I made the New York Times bestseller list, I called my mom and said, Mom, I got on the New York Times bestseller list. And she said, the newspaper in New York? And I said, yeah, the New York Times. And she said, I don't believe it. And I thought, well, it's wow. it's true. And she said, well, I didn't see it. Nobody's told me. And I remember feeling so wow. crushed. And I kept thinking, what do I have to do to do this? And when I got reviewed in the Times, I remember my sister called me and said, well, you know, I thought the other reviews in, in the magazine were better than yours. And mm -hmm. I would say, well, did you like the book? And there would be silence and she would say, oh, you know, it's, it was okay. And mm. so it was this constant feeling of mm. what do I have to do to show you that I did this and it's a good thing. And, and I just realized that it wasn't so much that I wanted their praise as I just wanted them to see me and to say, mm -hmm. oh, you did it. And the interesting thing with my mother is that in the last 10 years of her life, and she actually lived to be 100, which is amazing, she had a kind of dementia. And in her dementia, she suddenly gave me everything I had wanted. Wow. I would come to visit her and she would say, oh, you know, I read your last book and it was so wonderful. And she couldn't read. She had dementia. And I would say, oh, like, what did you like? And she said, oh, there was this character. And she would go off on a tangent about a character I had not written, but it didn't matter because just hearing her talking mm -hmm. about it and she was genuinely so happy. And when her aides and nurses would come in, she would say, this is my daughter. And she wrote this amazing book. And I realized that to me, that's what fame was. I just wanted the one specific person who I loved to love me in a way that showed that she saw who I was and to be proud of me. And it took a really long time to get that. And so I gave that to Simon and you know, it was therapeutic to do it and to have him realize that it wasn't all the throngs of girls and crowds and all that that mattered. It was his father. Right. Wow. You made me tear up with yeah. That story. That thank yeah, you so much for sharing that. Thing. It's yeah. so like, uh. <laughs> well, and Carolyn has. I, I stalk Carolyn a little bit on social media. I love oh, that. <laughs> Part of it is, um, if you want your TBR list to grow and grow, Carolyn is such a fellow um, supporter to her authors out there. Oh. And I have found so many books via stalking you <laughs> and you're, you know, you blog about different writers and interview them and it's really lovely. So thank you for that. And um, I hope that, you know, they heap enough praise on you too for you to realize what a wonderful <laughs> human being you are out in the world. So thank you for that. Well, you know, I have to tell you that part of that actually comes from, again, from my family growing up where I was told that I was not a wonderful human being, that I was selfish and too independent and this and that. And um, I just decided that I was not going to be an angry person 
like people in my family that I was going to, you know, be kind for no one other re- no other reason than to do that. And I can remember like doing certain things that were kind. And my mother would say, "Why are you doing that? People are just going. To, you can't trust people. They're just going to come back and hurt you." And I thought, "Wow, that's a really uncomfortable way to live your life." And the thing for me is, I got a, I had a lot of help from other writers when I was you know, first starting out. And I also had some writers who were not helpful and who were cruel. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I don't want to do that. And there's a joy in being part of a community like the writer's community. And I feel like we're all in the same ocean and we're all swimming. So why not help people stay afloat? You know, it's like it helps all of us. And it's this wonderful sense of community. And especially now in the pandemic to have that kind of bond and love and put that out in the world is I think it's a really important thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. Carolyn, I'd like to ask a question. And this we don't have to take a lot of time with this because it's maybe a little bit of a in the weeds question. But I was fascinated that you have stories that have been condensed for magazines. You know, that's not something, I mean, and for some people that seems more like a 19th century thing. You know? Well, that was a long, yeah, that was a long time ago. That was when I was in my 20s. And, you know, back then they did condense, it was Red Book Magazine did condense stories from magazines. Okay. And it was this amazing thing because they gave so much space. Um, they really don't do that anymore, which okay. is too bad because yeah. it would be a nice, I guess maybe Reader's Digest used to do that a lot. Yeah. But, um, that was that was really really early in my career, okay. um, and it was a nice thing. <laughs> well, because now it's now it's a little bit different, right? That someone will kind of write a short piece, and it might be expanded into a full right. fledged book, right? That's how yeah. I see it differently. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. It's the exact opposite. There's been like you know a lot of times people will write short stories or they'll write a modern love. I have friends who've written modern right. loves, and then agents have said, "Is this a book?" Can you expand this? And then, of course, they say, oh, yeah, yeah of course I will. Um, so it works out for that. Give me a few years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Carolyn, you've been doing such a wonderful job of promoting folks on A Mighty Blaze and, as I said, through your own website. Can you tell our listeners about how you're promoting your book and how they can find you and yeah. your events? I would love to. Well, a lot of... Um, um, all of my events, there's 47 of them. I've wow. never had so many events yeah. um, are on my web are on my web page, which is carolinelevitt.com. Um, I talk about them all the time, either on you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, I'm at Levitt Novelist, I'm on Instagram, though I'm just sort of learning how to use Instagram still as Caroline Levitt. Algonquin has a wonderful page where they they also have had made me up this wonderful, amazing book club kit complete with pages on who are Simon's favorite bands and why (laughs) (laughs) Stella like and why they did these really creative out of the box things and um, I also want to tell writers that if you feel like you're not being promoted contact me and you know if the blaze can't do anything for you I can you know I have this I have this blog and I have a really big mouth in terms of promoting people and I'm I'm happy to share the wealth 
Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Lovely. lovely that you offer that. Listen and, and follow through, writers out there. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many things you can do to help yourself that people don't don't realize. And, you know, it's it's just a really great thing to do. And also follow everybody I follow on Twitter and Facebook. Just go down and tick it all along because there's a lot of media people on there. And what happens is they'll see like you've requested a friendship and then they'll go to your profile and they'll see you're a writer and they'll say, oh, that's interesting. And then you can make a connection. I mean, it's just a little trick. (laughs) Social media networking. Now we know the inside scoop. See, I don't know these things. That's so interesting. Yeah, in fact, the Mighty Blaze is actually going to be offering classes in the near future on how to use social media because writers don't really take advantage of it the way they could. And believe me, I didn't either. I, I actually hired the two Mighty Blaze people to help me figure out how to use Instagram and how to best use social media. And there's all kinds of things that you can do that are so easy that you wouldn't know about and they work. And is the best place for people to find out about that just through a Mighty Blaze Facebook page or um, website? They can go to the Mighty Blaze Facebook page or the Mighty Blaze uh, website. themightyplace.com and I mean things are changing there every day that I can't I can't keep up with all the stuff that they do (laughs) I mean Jenna Blum is a genius she really is she's she's my co-founder and she just expands it every day into and so do all the other people who work for the blaze it's a wonderful thing and it's it's really interesting and I mean, it's interesting that your book, you know, your book tour has been somewhat expanded during due to the pandemic because people are more willing and interested in doing virtual events at bookstores far and wide. So I'm so glad that's happening for you. And I want to tell listeners, I think this would be a fantastic book club book. So read it with your book club. Go to Algonquin. We'll put a link in the show notes also about that book club. What a great idea. Oh, it's it's an incredible kit. They have like... They did, first of all, it's beautiful. They did such a beautiful job, and they have all these fun things in it, and they have questions and essays, and um, I, I will send you the the link in case so you don't have to go looking for it. Okay, great, <laughs> thank you. It, just one, I have one more question. With all the different types of writing you've done, and your, uh, you know, how much you social network with people who have books out already, what kind of advice do you have for new writers, whatever their age? Um, to get going on this passion that they have? I have a lot of advice. The first thing is like, never, ever give up, really. No does not mean no. If you send something to an agent, if the agent says, well, you know, I liked it, except the ending fell apart, so I'm sorry. Write back to the agent and say, you know, if you would you look at it if I rewrote the ending? And 99% of the time, the agents will say, well, yes, I I would be willing to. Um, You can have 60 rejections, and then the 61st might be a yes. Um, A writing career is not straight up for anybody that I know. I mean, I I had success with my first novel, and then the next eight were, they didn't sell. (laughs) Nobody knew who I was. I didn't, I 
didn't make any money. And then I switched publishers and all of a sudden I had a career again. So never think of yourself as a failure. Just keep writing. Another wonderful thing to do to become a part of the community, which was told to me by um, Carolyn C. She said every week or every month, write a really nice letter to a writer you admire, you know, aim high. Don't ask for anything. Just say your work has meant so much to me. And I just wanted to tell you that. And that's how you make community. I mean, I tracked down John Irving and I wrote to him and I didn't ask for anything. And he actually wrote me back a two page handwritten letter. And he said, you know, I read your letter three times because I kept thinking, where's the ask? What does she want? You know, and that letter was how eventually I was able to convince him to come on a mighty blaze, which was an amazing, amazing, amazing thing to happen. But you build community. And the thing is, it doesn't matter how huge the writer is. They like to be told that their work matters to you. Um, Keep writing. Um, As I said, follow everybody that I follow on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure your profile says that you are a writer. Um, And if you write, you are a writer. You don't have to be published. You're still a writer. I think mostly it's like persistence. Persistence pays off. Do not give up. Do not. There's so much. There's so many people who are going to be negative and tell you no. And just don't listen. Just keep going. It's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. I think that everyone who's a writer should put that. You know, make a little postcard and decorate <laughs> it that says, "I write, so I'm a writer," and yes. put it in your mirror in your bathroom. <laughs> so that's what you see first thing every morning. Yes. That's lovely yes. advice. That's that's really a great idea, you know, because the more you see that statement, the more I'm so into brain chemistry, the more your brain takes it and it thinks, well, that is who I am and that is who you are. And, you you know, you're going to meet people. You're going to say, well, I'm a writer. And they'll say, oh, really? Where have you published? And, you know, you just say, well, I'm a writer. You know, it's a process. And don't let anybody make you feel that you're not because you are. Great note to end on. (laughs) Yes, you are a wonderful person. We're so lucky we got the chance to talk to you a second time in 2020. I'm lucky I got a chance to be on the Cougars. I love you. I was the first time I heard that the Cougars were going to interview Jen and I for Mighty Blaze. I was so excited because I, of course, like every writer, I know about the work you do. And you're just both so wonderful and so open-hearted. And this was, this is like, thrilling for me absolutely an honor oh thank you thank you and we wish you the best of luck with the new book thank you thank you so so much i'm thrilled thank you for your time and Uh, it really was an honor thanks for listening to the book cougars with chris wallach and emily fine we'll be back with another episode in two weeks until then come chat with us on social media or on our goodreads group And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.